Welcome back to Restorative Grief with Mandy Capehart. You are listening to episode 35 titled Caring for the Caregivers with Bill Cohen. This week's episode is all about the caregivers, both those of us who hold a formal professional caregiving role and those of us who are caring for family members. After caring for his own sweet mother for nearly 10 years before she passed from Alzheimer's, Bill connected his experience working in finance as a certified senior advisor to the incredible work of supporting other unpaid family members who cared for their loved ones. Loss and grief have become an encore career for Bill as he volunteers his time training and advocating for grief supporters and caregivers to learn how to better care for themselves while caring for others. Hi, Bill. Thanks for joining me on Restorative Grief today. I appreciate you coming in. Hi, Mandy. Excited to be here. Thanks for having me on. Absolutely. Yeah, this is such a great podcast opportunity for all of our listeners to start to hear perspectives from different people in all walks of life and all areas of the professional and experienced grievers world, um, just mm-hmm. to hear how we're all getting through and what we're doing that really serves us well. And so I love the way that you have presented just your story to me. And so before we dive into that, why don't you take a minute and just tell our audience a little bit about who you are? So I am Bill Cohen. I'm a certified senior advisor. I'm in the Portland, Oregon area, just outside in Tualatin. Been here over 30 years and I help families all over the country with advice, support, and resources and referrals help them manage the care and the behaviors, practice self-care, prevention. And I needed somebody like me back when I started my journey and didn't exist. And so I'm trying to help others through that uh, in my own way. Because as you probably know, caregivers, most of the focus is on the care recipient, especially when it comes to dementia and other chronic illnesses. Most people are not asking the caregivers, how are you doing? What resources do you need? What referrals or advice or support do you need? And that's where I come in. So, yeah. And yeah, it's an interesting story how I got here. Yeah, You know, caregivers are easily overlooked and we're not even going to touch on caregivers in the pandemic right now, but mm-hmm. it easily misunderstood that caregivers are able to take the same amount of time and energy and effort and intention for themselves as well. So I love that you recognize that opportunity and that gap to come alongside other people who need it because if they're not sustaining themselves, then they aren't going to be of any use trying to sustain someone else as well. So Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I want to know, you mentioned that this is an interesting story, how you got here, but I don't think you got here because this was your childhood dream to support caregivers. I think you probably got here in a less fun way. So why don't you tell me about that? Yes, absolutely. And so what I usually like to do is say, if you had told me about 17 or so years ago, what was going to transpire and that I'd be sitting here talking to you today and doing what I'm doing. I'd say, no way you're crazy. I just couldn't see that scenario happening. So essentially I was working full time in a government job here in Oregon. My mom was living in Biloxi, Mississippi. So you can probably tell I'm not from there, (laughs) but she was showing some signs back around 2004 or five, something. We weren't sure exactly what was wrong, but she wasn't taking care of the house. She wasn't taking care of the finances, paranoia, confusion, memory loss. She was in the caregiver role at that time for my late stepfather. 
And we were thinking, well, if he passes away or goes into a care committee, will she bounce back? Unfortunately, we never got that opportunity because what happened on the Mississippi Gulf Coast in New Orleans in August 2005, Hurricane Katrina. And she fully expected to come back to their house, which was completely swept away in a storm surge. Mm. So needless to say, the trauma exacerbated and accelerated whatever condition she had coming on. And she definitely got worse. Make a long story short, she was with other family after she evacuated safely on the East Coast. I start doing long distance caregiving and, and cross country travel while she's with other family. I started attending a support group. I started talking to a care community in Southwest Portland. And like I said, I'm still holding down a full time job. I'm dealing with all these matters after the fact of the of the, the loss of the hurricane, finances, legal, real estate, everything, step family, we won't even get into them. And then I had a very challenging, shall we say, supervisor uh, in my job. So my stress level was sky high. So there was the going to the support group was extremely important in providing advice, support, knowing I wasn't alone uh, and how to handle it better. And that's part of the story, which I'll get into in a moment. So in 2008, I moved her out to Oregon while she was still ambulatory and reasonably some level of cognitive ability. And she was in the same care community that I originally talked to for about five years for which were memory care. And she passed away in 2013 at age 83. Now, I kept going to that support group for a little while. It was through the Alzheimer's Association. I became the facilitator. I get involved with the walk. I get involved with other volunteering and fundraising, advocacy. And as I approached retirement from that state job, I was thinking, oh, I'll just do more volunteer work when I retire. Well, I came across this concept of a caregiving support consultant. And I started doing my research. And six years ago this month, I started that business and retired a couple of months later. Basically, the long short of it is I turned my personal loss, my pain into my passion and my encore career. So the business is called Cohen Caregiving Support Consultants. And like I say, I also do volunteer work. I love to give back to my community. So we're doing a lot of networking of things uh, in my community. That's the very short version of a long story over a 10-year period. Right, right. You could easily devote hours to each year because there's so much nuance and even disenfranchised grief that came up as you were talking that I'm empathetically just feeling on this side for you, knowing very well, like, oh, that every everything that you encounter, even the stepfather, even the step siblings or other related individuals, the hurricane, all of it, it layers upon itself. I loved that you said it became, it was your passion that turned all of that loss was able to transform into a passion into this second half career, which I really feel like those second life careers, so to speak, make the first half make so much more sense when you can translate all of what you've experienced into this practical and applicable and easily communicated like life lesson, so to speak, where what is important becomes the primary thing. And for you to identify, well, actually caring for those who are caring for others is so valuable. I have to believe that it came out of that support group and I want to know what of that support group, like what specific things did you find in that support group that really moved the needle for you? Mm-hmm. 
And, and one of the things I do like to mention about that, you're absolutely right, was that if that had not been a good experience, mm-hmm. when my mom had passed away, I might have just walked away and right. said, I'm done. I'm exhausted. Right. I knew how to take care of myself. But from the very beginning, there were other people who had gone through it or were going through it. Some kept going after their loved ones passed away, which is what I did as well. And to learn that you're not alone, that it's a confidential, safe environment. You get information, you get suggestions. Sometimes just people listening is important. And that group, and same one, like I said, I've been doing it now for 16 years, either attending or facilitating. And I do to others as well. That's how important I think it is. All ages, all demographics, all kinds of dementia, all kinds of relationships. And people feel it's a warm, supportive, uh, welcoming environment. That's what I try to encourage. That's what I felt. And that's what I try to maintain as well. And when people come in, and this goes for my clients as well, but especially the support groups, when they come in, you see them so tense. You see them so they're looking around or on Zoom. I don't know if I'll have much to say. And they usually start opening up. Yeah, and usually they should have tissue nearby or I bring it to the in-person meetings because the, the gratifying thing is when that tension starts melting away a little bit, they start opening up and they realize they are not alone. There are other people going through it like, like we are. And that's very gratifying to see. Yeah, I'm a big fan of story. I, I think it's as individual as our DNA. And without taking time to express our stories, we'll never know fully what we're carrying, but also what we're missing out on by keeping it to ourselves. Mm-hmm. Um, you said something about support groups being confidential, which easily quantifiable, right? We know what confidential means, but you mm-hmm. said the word safe. And in my grief work with people, creating safety is one of the most challenging things to do, especially in a group setting, drawing people out and affirming that they are not only safe to share, but that they can trust the room that they're in. So I'm curious, how do you start? Like, what are some of your actual practical things that you do to cultivate safety and trust in these support groups so that people aren't showing up and saying, whoa, I have to come in the room and cry and be vulnerable and be honest about how I feel? No, thank you, please. So how do you mm-hmm. actually draw people out of themselves? So for one thing I, I make sure they understand is if you, they've heard of like a, uh, like a 12-step program, I make sure they understand it's not that. And you can talk as little or as much as you want to. You can simply listen. We can cross-talk, which is not allowed in those other kinds of groups. And that, but don't allow everybody their time to share, their time to talk, their time to open up and encourage people. Yes, if you have a suggestion from your experience, do you have any ideas? I, even though I've been through it, I always say, I don't have all the answers. You all do. And I see that in my Facebook community as well, whether it's the actual Facebook page, that, uh, because it's a private group. Again, going back to the safety and confidentiality, et cetera, it's visible, but people can join it and then it is private. They don't have to worry about it being shown to the outside. Same thing with the group. Whatever is said in the group stays in the group. And again, they can say as much or as little as they want, but most people eventually, if not that first meeting, will open up. I want to pivot a little bit um, and just ask about caregivers specifically. I know that I think, correct me if I'm wrong, I think the majority of caregivers end up being family members. Is that accurate? Yes, uh, in some way. And let's redefine caregivers. Yes. It doesn't just mean the hands-on. 
If you're handling the finances or the legal or ordering things or taking them to the doctor or any other aspects of their care or their matters, being an advocate for them, you're a caregiver. Some people say, oh, I'm not a caregiver. I'm not, mom's not at home with me or my husband is now in a care community. I'm not doing that hands-on stuff. No, you are a caregiver. Thank you, because that I think that that's even as you were talking, I was like, oh, I know four people who qualify immediately Mm -hmm. because we don't. You're absolutely right. We minimize the contributions and the effort and the actual cost to us Mm -hmm. as caregivers, as contributors to someone else's life. We forget to maintain our own well-being through it because we think, oh, it's just finances. I'm paying my own bills, too. I would do it for them. Um, so with that said, what do you find is the biggest struggle for family members who are giving care of any sort to their family members? Because I, I can imagine there would be a lot of kind of conflicting emotions of suddenly becoming the parent to an extent. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you're reading my mind. Absolutely. <laughs> it's not just the tasks. It's not just the things that need to get done. And that's bad enough. And one of the pieces of advice I give is that basically you can't do it all yourself and you can't do it all at once. You essentially have to go into triage mode. This is most important. Then this will be next and everything else have to wait. You have to learn how to get various people to help you in some way. And it can be some of those other tasks. Please, can you pick up the dry cleaning for me? Can you go get those prescriptions, pick them up at the drugstore for me? Uh, Can you make some phone calls for me? Things like that. But many people don't want to do that because they don't want to be a burden or they want to say, I'm fine. I can handle it. I'm okay. Nobody else can do it as well. I could uh, actually tell a story about a gentleman actually also admitted that he was in denial and that he had some control issues. He says, yes, all the above. I've got those issues because (laughs) he wanted wanted to protect his wife, uh, who was a gerontologist, got Alzheimer's, and she would have been uh, embarrassed if people found out what happened to her, Mm. and especially Mm. if she went into care community. So those are some of the issues you have to deal with. You have to know how to ask for help. You need to look for support because that can come from so many different places. It could be friends. It could be family. It could be neighbors. It could be ex-coworkers. It could be your local church or other charitable organization. Support, your family can come from so many directions, but you have to ask it because this gets into that self-care area. Yeah. Am I doing enough? Am I feeling guilty? I wish this was over. Some uh, being impatient with them. Some of those. It's, those are the hardest things to learn to correct them, especially when it comes to dementia. To try to fix them or get your hopes up. Oh, they're doing better today. Maybe they're getting better. This is some of the reality things that dementia, in particular, carriers learn sometimes the hard way, but eventually that they've got to let some of those things go, not feel so guilty. They're doing the best they can. And that self-care, as I like to say, it's not selfish. It's vital. It is vital. It is. It's, I'm, as I'm listening to you, I'm just thinking, these are the same things I talk with grievers and caregivers to their own degree are absolutely grievers. They just may not have an awareness around it because it is such a an easy thing to disenfranchise or our own grief or to say, well, that's not grief because they're still alive. I'm not grieving. I'm just overwhelmed or it's just too much. And and so one of the things that I try to do on this podcast is to just send home the message that grief is going to show up when it shows up. And it takes an awful lot of humility 
to recognize it and work through it. So I love that you were talking about almost confessing that need to help. All right. And I, and I think I'm going to predict that you're going to ask me something along these lines. <laughs> when it comes especially to dementia in general, and especially Alzheimer's, we know it's terminal. We know there's no cure or treatment. We're getting closer, fortunately. It is the getting into those areas of anticipatory or ambiguous grief because they are still there. The person is still there. They're still the same person. They're just not reacting. They're not responding. They're not being their same person. And there's a reason why they call it the long goodbye. In the case of my mom, over those 10 years, especially in the last few months when she was going on hospice and she was less responsive and knowing that it was coming, I mean, I was thinking, I've already done my most of my grief. I mean, I, I've said goodbye to my mom. I've, I've talked to her as much as I can. I always assumed that on some level she understood, she heard, she comprehended something, even if she wasn't talking or responding in any way. And the night that she passed away, I was in the room with her. My brother had called. I got him on the phone. I said, just talk. Don't worry about if she responds. Just she needs to hear your voice. And actually, a couple hours later, that's when she left. She could let go. I had also moved over away from next to her bedside to a bed that was vacated by her former roommate. And I think it was those two steps that on some level she could let go. It was okay to go goodbye. And even though I kept on saying it, it's okay, mom, you'll be fine. We'll be fine. Reassuring. And so when that labored, raspy breathing finally stopped, it wasn't bawling or, oh my God, you know, or anything like that. It was, she's gone. It's over. She's no longer suffering. It was a big sense of relief. And interestingly, two days later, we were in Costa Rica. We had planned a trip well before, never thinking she was going to last as long as she did. So two, uh, two days later, we're, we're in Costa Rica because, as I like to say, for once in her life, mom was on time. <laughs> she was always late. <laughs> but, it was, but it was the perfect place to start to recuperate, to recover, to grieve. Because yeah. it was so beautiful and, and some good activities. And then as somebody asked me in my support group about losing your mother, the thing is that ever since then, everything I've done, volunteer work and now my business, is in her memory, her honor, including mm-hmm. my walked and Alzheimer's team, which called Team Sheila. Her name and this just starting my ninth year. <laughs> I I love that you I'm I'm gonna say the word confessed simply because I can't think of a different one, but confessed mm-hmm. relief at watching your mom pass because that's one of those things I've unpacked with almost every client as well. Just Actually experiencing relief in your grief process is not a dishonor. It's not a problem. It's not a disorder. You didn't grieve incorrectly. It's a natural part of the Mm -hmm. process. Like when you're holding your breath, you get relief when you finally let it go. And with long goodbyes, with ongoing grief that doesn't seem to have quote unquote resolution, right? That relief has to come. Otherwise we you know, pass out because we've held our breath for so long. So Mm -hmm. thank you for saying that word specifically, because you're absolutely spot on. And the interesting part about all of, all of what you've said and your work with caregivers, 
that I would love to hear from you is how do you encourage caregivers who are totally self-sufficient type a, I can do it all myself personality. I don't care that you think I'm falling apart and my life is on fire. I'm fine. How do you draw those people in and help, help them have, I mean, you can't help anybody who doesn't want help. Obviously Mm -hmm. I know that, but from what I am gathering, you're the kind of person that probably doesn't take no from, from people, you know, need your support. So how do you, how do you show up for people in a way that is not invasive, but is truly, Hey, I'm available because you know, that we all know that person, right? We all, whether it's the stubborn person we're trying to give care to, or the stubborn caregiver who refuses to let anyone help them, what would you recommend? Well, part of the problem with that question, and you're, and you're absolutely right, that there are a lot of difficult situations in families and stubborn people, or um, uh, I can handle it. I'm the, I'm the only one who can do it. I'm fine. That they, it's a matter of asking a lot of questions to a lot of listening. I try not to be pushy at all. I understand sometimes I have to wait weeks, months before they say, yeah, I need your help now. But I try to get across that. I understand where you're coming from or what you're going through. I've been there. And that's why I'd say I come from a place of compassion and empathy. And that what I was going to start to say is that every case of Alzheimer's, if you've seen one case, you've seen just one case. Same with dementia. Same with aging. Yeah. There's common threads, but every situation is, is a little bit different. And get across to them that you're not the only person that's going through this. Support and resources are available. You don't have to go it alone. There is hope. You don't have to feel so exhausted, overwhelmed, stressed like I did too. Keep reiterating that. And I'm not a, <laughs> to be honest, my, I had another previous career. I was in financial services. I was a lousy salesman. So, <laughs> so I, I'm certainly not the kind of person who's going to be pushed with, well, are you ready yet? No, I'm not going to do that. But I will occasionally check in with those people. I want to see how you're doing. Uh, did you want to uh, schedule time to, to talk? And sometimes that's all they need. I have a gentleman here in town, and I help people all over the country, but uh, this case is uh, in town, where his wife has memory issues. She's still at home. He mostly just needs someone to talk to. Yeah. He hardly asks anything about specific resources, et cetera. He just needs, and we had met like at least two or three years ago. And he finally contacted me again. The time became right for him. Sometimes it takes a while. Now, let me reiterate that about men, for instance. When I was starting my journey 16, 17 years ago, it was about one out of every five dementia caregivers were men. Now it's about one out of every three. So men, more and more men are moving into that role. And I see that under my clients. I see that in my support groups. But they tend not to, kind of like what you were just talking about, seek out support or ask for help or I'm fine. I can handle it. It is tasks. It's getting a project done. Type of thing. A little different the way women are doing it. It's a little more from the nurturing side or used to caring for other family members. I give my mom credit for making me a strong nurturer. So <laughs> it was never any question that I was going to step into this role. Yeah. <laughs> well, we are coming up on our time. So before I ask my last question, why don't you tell our audience where they can find you, how they can get in touch with you? Mm-hmm. So my website is. Cohen caregiving support.com. That's C O H E N 
caregivingsupport.com. I'd like to also mention, I did briefly before, I have a Facebook community, which is very helpful to many dementia caregivers, dementia support group for caregivers with Bill Cohen. And again, it's open to everybody. And actually, it's on most in most of the states and provinces and on six continents. That's super, super impressive to have a group that is so well participated in and spans over such a large region. So well done. Um, Thank you. Except I haven't (laughs) found a a penguin in Australia yet. You know what? They have sad moments. Not Australia, Antarctica. Sorry, Antarctica. (laughs) Sad penguins exist. I'm sure they need backup. (laughs) Okay, this is a a new thing I'm trying. I want to ask you, what is the absolute worst platitude you've ever been offered in grief? And how did you reply to it? Wow. I don't think there's going to be anything um, profound. It's more like, okay, move on, get over it, that type of thing. Yeah. I don't know how much I heard that. I think my family and friends knew what I had gone through and were allowing me to. But I think at least one or two people said that. And I just was polite and didn't say, are you kidding me? (laughs) (laughs) I went through a 10-year journey watching my mother deteriorate with a debilitating progressive neurological disease. And you're telling me to move on? No, it doesn't work that way. But fortunately, most people understood and were very supportive. And actually, even that horrible boss that I had had some experience in caregiving. So at least that aspect, she was understanding. A little bit of compassion. Yeah. A little bit of compassion. Yeah. Well, good. Well, Bill, this has been a wonderful conversation. I'm so excited to bring you to the audience and just start to see help them kind of recognize like grief is not just limited to the death. There are other places that you get support because it's, it's impacting you, whether you know it or not. So thank you so much for making time and for being on the show. It's been a pleasure for me as well. Nice, nice talk with you, Mandy. Thank you for listening to episode 35 of restorative grief. Unpaid family members are often the first line of defense when a loved one is diagnosed with illness, and this is a burden too great to bear alone. I love that Bill's work is intended to connect those family members with resources, compassion, and encouragement to care for themselves while caring for others. Because let's be honest, caregivers aren't exactly the most eager people making time for themselves, right? Self-care habits and knowledge of the healthcare system are not inherent in our lives, which is exactly why Bill's work is crucial. If this is your first time listening to Restorative Grief, I want to thank you for taking time out of your day to equip yourself with a little more knowledge about loss. Please subscribe to the show and leave a review because your reviews help others who need us find us. You can find all the links to Bill's work and contact information in show notes at mandykapehart.com. And I also hope you'll share this episode with someone else who needs to know that their unpaid caring and love for a family member in need is not going unnoticed. And one last thing, the only solution for grief is to do the work of grieving. Thank you for listening. I'll see you next week. Mm